On Thursday of this week, Donald Trump met with the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. The purpose of the meeting was to begin to repair the damage and division, maybe even destruction, in the Republican Party in this unprecedented in recent history primary. Now, both Donald Trump and Paul Ryan came out of this meeting giving positive sentiments about how it had gone and encouraged that they could move forward and unify the party and, you know, rally to, you know, make this campaign competitive against uh, whoever the nominee will be in the Democratic Party. Ryan commented, he has a very good, speaking of Trump, he has a very good personality, he's a very warm and genuine person. Now, this statement gave me some pause because I've, I have followed in and out of this Republican primary, uh, and it didn't quite match my perception of Donald Trump that I saw on the TV. Now, I, I have not met the man personally, and uh, it just started to make me pause and think, who really is this guy, Donald Trump? I mean, you know, what really makes him tick? What is his motivation? What's driving him in this campaign? You know, who is he? And that just kind of, I think we all ask that question oftentimes of people in power, politicians. You know, who, who really are they? If you were to sit in a room with, you know, Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders or, you know, Obama, what would they really be like? And what is it that it really is driving them, motivating them? Who are they? Now, you know, apart from conspiracy theories and liberals or conservatives who like to demonize the other people in the group, what really makes these people tick, and what are they really about? And this got me thinking about a larger question, which is about the most powerful person in the universe, God. What is God really like? And who really is he? And what really makes him tick, and what really motivates him? We're starting a three-week series today from the book of 1 Kings, and it's, uh, we're calling it God of the Impossible. And we're asking this question, who is God, and what is he really like, and what is he about, and what is he doing in this world? And what is he capable of doing, and what does he want to do? Who is your God? And we're going to be looking at a passage in the Bible, a book uh, in the Old Testament. And this book tells the story of the nation of Israel after the reign of King David. You know, the guy that killed that giant Goliath with the sling and the stone. You may have heard about him. And we're going to be picking up uh, the story in this book after David's son Solomon has just kind of died and passed on the throne to a number of kings. So we're in the book of Kings. I'll give it away. We're talking about kings, and the first half of the book of 1 Kings is all about this guy Solomon, David's son, and how he rules, and then the rest is just a long litany of all these kings that, that serve in these two different nations, because the nation of Israel splits in half after Solomon is dead, and we're looking at the northern nation, which retains the name of Israel, okay? Sorry, a lot of historical facts here, but King David, then there's Solomon, his son, and then a bunch of kings after that, and after Solomon, the nation split in two, and we're looking at... What is going on in this northern nation of Israel? Okay? You guys with me? 
Okay. So we're going to start in 1 Kings 17. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. It'll also be up on the screen. All right. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. Went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Now, Elijah appears on the scene in the middle of this book of Kings. doesn't talk about who his daddy is or his mom or where he came from, really, besides that he's from this Tishbe place, which is a little bit unknown in this place of Gilead. Uh, we just don't know a lot about him. He comes on the scene and just says, hey, you know what? It's not going to rain for three years. There's going to be a drought. And actually, in that first section, we don't know if Elijah is speaking for God or not. He just says there's going to be no rain. Now, the rest of this chapter, the purpose is to establish two things, which are related to Elijah's own name. Elijah's name means Yahweh is my God. Or you could, I mean, you could, you could, the order it actually is in the Hebrew is my God is Yahweh. That's what his name means. And the rest of this chapter is going to set out to show two things, that Yahweh is God and that he is the God of Elijah. You're going to see that being proved in the rest of this chapter. Now, we have to understand one more thing about who is reading this book in its context. Because this book goes through the whole history of all the kings of Israel, it's written after that ended, after the fall of Jerusalem, when all these people were shipped off to Babylon, and they're living in a place where they're wondering these same questions that we've just talked about. Is this God of the Bible? Is this God of Elijah really God? Is there really a God? What is He like? Why would He let us become captives in a foreign land? Why did all of this take place? What is He like? Is He powerful? Is He more powerful than these other gods, the gods of Babylon even, who were leading these Babylonians that took us captive? You can see a lot of the same questions that we started this with, they're asking. And so this whole chapter is, and these next three weeks we're going to be studying, are looking at this question of saying that no, Yahweh, this God of the Israelites, that's his personal name in the Bible, is the Lord. He is God. Now, we see a hint of that just in these next few verses that we read after this initial proclamation from Elijah, right? We see them saying, oh, then the Lord actually does, says, does speak to Elijah and sends him off to this place to you know, be fed by ravens because this famine is coming. And then obviously we hear about the brook drying up. So this word that he shared actually does come true. Now, one more thing is that the reason that this, this uh, drought is happening is also two parts. There's the king that is ruling in Israel at this time. Uh, his name is Ahab. And he was married to 
Okay, everybody knows that name, right? And it says in, in the passage, right before the one that we read, that Ahab was like, did more wickedness in Israel than any king before him. He married this woman, Jezebel, who was from a, a region north of where they were living. It's called Sidon. And they worshipped the god Baal, among other gods. And Baal was the god of fertility. He was the storm god. He was represented often by a bull. Okay? So they you know, make little bulls, and there's Baal. And so um, Ahab is introducing that into this land, this worship of Baal, because he's married this woman Jezebel, and this, you know, it's kind of a treaty thing where they make a treaty between different nations by marrying off people. Um, okay, sorry, lots of historical data here. But the point is that that made God really mad. Because, you know, the, what is the first ten commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. There's only one God, and that, that was like their main thing that they were supposed to do was worship only God. So Ahab is receiving judgment upon the land because of this sin that is on the people. Okay? You guys tracking with me. The secondary piece is that God is going to reveal that he alone is God. There's a judgment piece, but the judgment, the purpose of which is to reveal that Baal is not God. So you can understand why a drought would show that a God of storm, rain, and fertility is not really the God. And we wouldn't really get that. And that's why I'm giving you all this historical data to try to get you into this this passage to see the point. The point is, is that God likes to reveal that there is no God but him. He likes, he's in the business of exposing idols, things that are not God, for who they really are. See, for us, you know, we, we talk about idols. Most of us don't have little images or statues in our house that we bow down to or like, you know, present little offerings of food. Although that happens all around the world. We have ones that are a little more hidden in our culture. They're things that we would say, I'll only be happy as long as I have, you know, Jesus and fill in the blank. That is what we call an idol. It's something that we look to to provide for us. Something that we look to to make us happy. I have to have this. Or something we say, if only... Whatever is at the end of that sentence for you... Is something that you're saying, I have to have this. And so what we see happening in this passage is that God is not, does not force himself on a people. And he often allows us to suffer at the hands of a cruel master. Because he's not going to force us to serve him. But he is always, again, in the business of revealing False gods that we serve that are cruel masters so that we would turn to him and receive kindness. I was a decent basketball player in high school. A decent high school basketball player. And I went to Gordon College. And when I was there, I started playing some basketball. And I, I, I tried out for the team there and I made the team. But there was this huge kind of emotional upheaval during that year where I just realized I wasn't the man anymore. You know, it's like, you know, big fish in a small pond, and now I'm a smaller fish, and it's still a smaller pond, but, I mean, Gordon, it's not like, it's not like I'm playing for, you know, UMass or something. But 
That was a huge thing for me. And anytime I like, you know, would compete against people that were better than me, sometimes my ego would take a hit. And that was revealing to me that there was an idol in my life. Both ego, my own pride in myself, and in this game of basketball, which is silly. You just throw a pig, you know, leather ball through a hole in the sky, and I think I'm cool because I can do that, right? So that's how God works. He is always working to reveal these cruel masters that we serve, that we think are going to make us happy, but that really never will. But he's never forcing us to choose him. He's always allowing us that choice, as we're even going to see in this passage. Sometimes I wonder if that's why the Red Sox, you know, just had to lose for all those years. It was just God was just revealing idols of you know, the Red Sox and everybody's life. And somehow they were liberated from that. I don't know. But God works in funny ways. So it's interesting that in this passage that God takes care of Elijah. He provides for Elijah. Because that is essentially what we are all questioning if God is going to do for me. Will God meet my needs? What a weird way to do this. He sends birds to bring meat and bread. I mean, it's just weird. Okay, meat and bread. Why? I don't know. I mean, it seems somewhat reflective of what the Israelites got in the wilderness when they had the manna on the ground and they had the quail in the evenings. He gets like a double portion somehow. He gets both meat and bread in the morning and evening. I don't know what that means. I don't know why he's using ravens. I don't know if anybody else does either. That's kind of fun, though. I would just be afraid that it would be a little dirty if, you know, the bird... Ravens don't seem like the cleanest thing to bring you food. The point of all this is, man, this is just, I mean, is this impossible? If someone walked along and told you this, that, oh, man, I was, you know, I was out in a park the other day and I prayed because I was hungry and God just, a raven just dropped some food in front of me. You know, it's hard to believe. But somehow God in a drought and a famine, somehow there's bread somewhere or it's miraculously appearing and then ravens are taking it from heaven or whatever and bringing it to Elijah. God is doing the impossible. And so for Elijah, he can say that my God is the God of the impossible. And he can provide for me even in a famine. You see the, 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 the parallel here that's going on? The contrast of exposing an idol that's not really God, that can't really provide rain or sustenance or food. And yet, it's the God of the Bible that then provides that for Elijah who trusts in him. God promises to meet our needs. Jesus says, do not worry about what you will eat or what you will wear. For the pagans run after these things. Right? He tells us not to worry that God can believe, can provide for our needs. The challenge for us is to believe that God will do that. I listened to a, a teaching this week uh, from a guy named Steve Backlund. Uh, he's, he's from Bethel, and his big shtick is joy. And here's a couple just quotes from that. You will know that your mind has been renewed when the impossible looks probable. You are modeling as a believer. You are modeling a lifestyle of what is possible. And when we give God something to work with, He can do a lot. The question for us is, is your God the God of the impossible? Because if you aren't expecting the impossible, your God is not Yahweh. 
Let's keep reading. Verse 8, when the word of the Lord came to him, that's Elijah, arise, go to Zarephath, I think, which belongs to Sidon and dwell there. This is where Jezebel is from, interestingly enough, this nation. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God, interesting, Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Morbid. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and her, her, and she and he and her household ate for many days and the jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Again, we see Elijah's uh, authority as the true speaker of the Lord being established in this. So we see that, you know, that, that Yahweh is Elijah's God. Now, God moves Elijah to this new place. There's no water for him to drink in the brook. The declaration again, we see that the drought came, you know, it came true. So Elijah again is, is seen as, um, you know, the man of God. Um, God continues to provide for Elijah even when the brook is dry. So we see God's provision that he alone is the one that provides. And he can do it even in a place where he's not supposedly God. Right? Sidon is, is the land of Baal. But somehow, it's God that can still provide anywhere because he is the only God. God is the one that has control over all those things. So, we get to this interaction with the widow, right? It's so interesting. Here's just this random dude that shows up and asks for water. He's from a foreign place. He serves a different God than she does. She lives in this land where Baal is God. It's the, it's the land of Jezebel, as I said. And he's asking her for water. And then he's asking her, he gives this huge question of her to make this little cake for him out of the last little bit that she has. And she's gonna, just gonna, her plan is just to go and die because she has no more food. And the famine is apparently up north there as well in this, new, in this other country. She has to take a risk, a step of faith to make him food when she's starving he's just a random stranger that she has no knowledge of before this she is taking a risk that somehow Yahweh this God of Elijah is the true God and not her God you can you can imagine a little bit of of the conflict that's within her right I mean these gods were not necessarily friendly with each other which is why the nations were also warring they were representing a certain God conquering on behalf of the name of that God and then establishing a temple for their God in that land That was the normal ancient Near Eastern practice. So she's saying, hey, if I help this guy out, my God, Baal, might be angry at me and curse me. I'm already in a tough spot where I'm barely making it, and we might just go and die after we eat our last meal. And he's asking for a portion of that. Are you feeling the tension a little bit? So she has to trust that this word that he has spoken is somehow true, which may get her in trouble with her local, this deity that is part of her nation. She refers to Yahweh as your God. It's not her God, it's his. But she takes the step 
of faith. In believing something that is entirely impossible will happen. That a jar of oil and a thing of flour will not run out until the rain comes again. That's the word that Elijah speaks before she goes and does this. She has to believe in something that's impossible. Impossible in order to trust in this God, Yahweh. Now, isn't that interesting? God calls us to believe in something absolutely impossible in order to follow him. Because he's the God of the impossible. That is his nature. She went and did as Elijah said, and then the Bible just says matter-of-factly, and then the jug of oil didn't run out and the flour never ran out. Like it's no big deal that that just happened. That there's just an infinite supply of oil and, wa- and, and flour all the time for this widow. It's like, it's like the everlasting gobstopper, right? Of somehow oil and flour. When I was a kid, every Easter morning, my sister and I would hustle down the stairs and, you know, discover somehow or find our Easter baskets. There's a spectrum of Easter candy eaters. On one hand, you have the bingers. That candy's gone in like a day or two. They can just gobble up. And the other spectrum is the hoarders. My sister was, you know, somewhere in the middle, you know, in the middle of that spectrum. I was over here. I mean, did you know that candy can go bad if you don't eat it in quick enough time? I, I discovered that because I would save it for weeks and ration it out, you know, and make sure that I could make it last as long as possible. You know, some of you just had a... a, a, a a new discovery there, you never realized that candy could go bad because it's never, you know. Chocolate can get this, like, white stuff to form on the out. All of you hoarders are saying, yes, I can't understand. Wow, I didn't know that, you know. I never let it last more than three seconds. A lot of us have a hoarder mentality when it comes to God. A poverty mentality that, that somehow we're not going to have enough. That God can't provide for me in this situation. It's only for the special holy people that, you know, stand on a stage. Or, you know, are missionaries or, you know, they somehow just have a special connection with God. I don't really see that in the Bible, though. Because there's only one holy man, that's Jesus. God calls us to believe even in the impossible provision that we can't see or that maybe is not even in the natural. But that's the kind of life that he's calling us and the kind of faith that he's calling us to have. After all, I mean, isn't this whole thing, everything that we're doing here, based on something that is entirely impossible, completely ridiculous that someone was raised from the dead? Everything else seems a little bit more believable, even ravens bringing food. I mean, you could probably manufacture that somehow. It's the God of the impossible. The God of the impossible is my God. Let's keep reading. Verse 17, after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. 
I just want to pause there. I think that's a familiar sentiment for many of us. He said to her, give me your son. He took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber and into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. Yahweh, this God of the Bible, He's a God of life and He has authority to do the impossible. Even He has authority over death. Many of us can identify with what the woman's saying that when something goes wrong in our life, we, we point the finger at God and we, we think that He is enacting something upon us because of our sins. Now, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting dance. Does God judge? Does He allow evil to happen? Of course. I mean, that's all around us. But again, it, it's, it's God's kindness, the Bible says, that leads us to repentance. God doesn't force Himself on us And oftentimes what we are suffering is a result of just the sin in the world or sometimes it could also be that we are worshiping an idol that God wants to reveal. We can't, we can't, the the passage though doesn't answer the question of why this happened though, does it? It doesn't say yes, it was the widow's sin or yes, it was because of the, you know, the larger amount of sin in the world or it was because, you know, Elijah, you know, sinned that day. I mean, it doesn't say why. It just leaves the question unanswered and then God moves through the faith of Elijah. So we don't always get the answers to our questions, but we do know that God is always working to draw us closer to Him through kindness and to reveal the idols so that we'll know His kindness. Amen? Elijah raises somebody from the dead. Now, Anita, can you put me up the, uh, the, the, the resurrection scorecard here? Okay, so Elijah gets one. Elisha gets two, one when he's, when he's after he's dead. They throw somebody in his tomb and he bounces back out of there. Jesus does three, so he's the winner. Peter did one and Paul did one. And then, you know, God does Jesus, of course, and then numerous others that says this kind of random thing in Matthew about people being raised from the dead when Jesus rose. So I don't know, we don't know how many people that was. So I guess God wins, potentially. And, well, Jesus does too. He's God too. Okay. Nobody had ever done this before. This, this had never happened, to our knowledge, in the history of the world. Thousands of years. It was not like, I mean, if you did it today, it'd be like, okay, you raised from the dead. Cool, that's happened before. I mean, big deal, right? <laughs> no one had ever done that before. That was absolutely impossible for that to happen. It had never happened before. That didn't matter, did it? Because Elijah's name is Yahweh is my God. The God of the impossible. All things 
are possible for one who believes. I'm not making that up because I'm quoting that from Jesus. Do you believe that? All things are possible for one who believes because with God, all things are possible. Jesus said that too. I'm not making it up. Somehow, Elijah got it. And for some reason, he believed it was possible for this boy to be raised back to life. It's incredible. What's interesting, too, about this passage is that we see a seed of what was going to come down the line with Jesus. Elijah does what Jesus would then do. Right? He stands in the gap between us and death. And he has complete and utter faith in God to do the impossible. Even on that night when he's praying, he says that. Do you remember this? Jesus says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. And Jesus lays himself out like Elijah did for us. If you've never, you know, heard the, the, you know, the message of the Bible summarized, here it is. We have all messed up. We've all become sick like this boy in this story. To the point that it leads us to death. Both in our circumstances here and all the death that you see all over the world and all the problems, it's due to the fact that we are messed up. And just like Elijah, Jesus came as the Son of God, as truly God and man, to step between us and death. And when we put our faith in Him, when we just cry out to Him for help, He promises to give us eternal life. And the way, the way we know that that is going to happen is because Jesus did the impossible. That God raised Him from the dead. The God of the impossible is my God. The God of impossible love is my God. That He would love everyone in the world regardless of all the wicked things that they have done. That you have done. All the evil thoughts, all the mean things you've said, all the ways that you've mistreated people or been selfish. God loves you because that's impossible and that's what He does. The God of impossible power is my God. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. The God of impossible goodness is my God. He's not calling us to live as a people that are impoverished and just hoping that God's going to come through. He's calling us to renew our minds with His amazing goodness and faithfulness to those that believe. To those that would dare trust Him. He's calling us to an impossible faith. The God of impossible grace is my God. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God for those who put their faith in Christ Jesus. 
And the God of impossible joy is my God. That is our destiny. That is why Jesus came to give us life into the full. Joy. All things are possible for one who believes. Because with God, nothing is impossible. The challenge for us today as we respond in one last song is what's your image of God? Who is your God? Because we oftentimes have a different image of the God that we are calling Yahweh or Jesus, but we've made Him something much smaller and much meaner than He really is. Let's pray.